بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا ونبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه وأزواجه ومن تبعهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم لا تدركه الأبصار وهو يدرك الأبصار وهو اللطيف الخبير وقال الله جل وعلا ألا يعلم من خلق وهو اللطيف الخبير وقال الله جل وعلا الله لطيف بعباده يرزق من يشاء وهو القوي العزيز صدق الله العظيم Today, inshallah, we'll be starting with the name Al-Latif. Al-Latif is one of those attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is very difficult for us with our very limited understanding to have a good understanding of it and to see the real application of it when it comes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the same situation with all the names and the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And therefore we always try to use examples to understand these attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Keeping in mind the literal meaning of the words and the examples that we use to understand these attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they don't really reflect on the real meaning of how this attribute applies to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It only gives us a little understanding from our point of view of how can we connect our souls to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through that attribute. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive us if we don't use the right examples or if we don't understand what we are supposed to understand about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or if we misunderstand and have a wrong understanding about these attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. After all, we are very limited. And especially, I don't know if I will have to repeat this statement again for any of the other attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but I have to say it for this one, Al-Latif subhanahu wa ta'ala, that it's so deep, it's so deep, that even talking about it is very difficult. There may be two attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that when I think about them, I think the only solution to that is just to close our eyes, our mouth, our ears, keep our senses away from everything of this world, and think of the greatness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that may give us, give us a little understanding of these attributes. Otherwise, using the physical senses, using the senses that we normally use to understand things, may not be able to give us the proper and the right information. 
One is this and the other is Al-Batin. Inshallah, we'll talk about it once we'll get to that one. Sometime, when I see people understanding or trying to understand Qur'an, and when I hear people talking about the ayahs of Al-Qur'an Al-Kareem, many times really I feel knowing the meaning of the words, knowing the translation of the ayah is keeping the person away from understanding the right meaning of the ayah. As you are hearing this, it may be not making any sense to you that understanding the meaning of the ayah should really improve our understanding of it. But in many cases we find understanding the translation keeps people away from understanding the meaning of the ayah. Does it mean we shouldn't understand the translation? No, it doesn't mean that. But it's simply to tell us that translations are never enough. And in many cases, knowing the translation may be a cause for the person to not understand the ayah because he feels now I know what does it mean after knowing the translation. Before knowing the translation, he never felt that way and he wanted to know the meaning of the ayah. After knowing the translation, now he feels, I know what it means, so he doesn't want to know what it means. So many cases, translation may be the thing that deprives the person from knowing the meaning of the ayah or understanding the message of the ayah. And not necessarily, I'm not referring to only for those of us who depend on reading the translation before we can understand what does the ayah literally means in translation. But even those who know the language, many times for those who know the language, who know the Arabic language, they may be more deprived from understanding it than those who don't know the language because as they know the language, they are of the feeling that I know what it means. So I don't want anyone to teach me. As long as we don't know the language of it, we are of the feeling that I really need to learn. Just for example, in our situation, for those who really need a translation to understand the literal meaning of the ayah, when we know the translation of what or choose ayahs, then for those ayahs we may feel, I know it. For this ayah now I don't need anything more. I know the meaning of this ayah. I remember, in my childhood, because of knowing the language, I always thought I can understand Qur'an. This was my feeling since childhood. Because I know the meanings of the words, not necessarily all the words, but speaking the language, I know the meanings of many of these words. So, that gave me the feeling that I really know what this, this ayah means. Until when we studied the tafsir of the Qur'an with the teacher, I realized my understanding regarding most of the ayahs was wrong. When I'm sitting with the teacher and he's explaining the ayah, initially my understanding would be, I know what it means. So in reality, I don't even want to pay attention to what he says. But for some reason, it was... A time came, a turn came into my life where I just wanted to learn whatever I can. 
And I wanted to learn more and more. Therefore, I'm just for that reason paying attention that I may learn something new from him. And when he's explaining and I realize, it's not only that I'm learning something new, everything that I'm learning is new, because the meaning I thought was the meaning of the ayah is not, this is not what the ayah means. It's totally different. And the meaning that I had in my mind about it was wrong. It is a reality that we see it, but it's difficult to understand until we pass through it. Once we pass through that stage, then we look back, really you see that how, what was our situation before learning it in the right way. So same thing, sometime when we try to understand the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through translations of the words and examples that may not really give us the right understanding, but that is our limit. In this case of understanding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and understanding the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's our limit. And we only have to use examples of things that are around us, things that we can use, things that we know of. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ There is nothing like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when we are using the examples, even these examples are wrong. But these are the closest way of understanding those things. For example, when we try to understand Jannah, and we use examples about how Jannah looks like, then we use some names of things that we use in this world. Really, it's only use of those names. Because we, our language is limited, our understanding is limited, so we are bound to use some of these words that we, of things that we use in this life. This is why sometimes I get a question from some people that in Jannah if we eat, and sometimes not only children that ask this question, some of the non-Muslims have raised this questions also about deen, about Islam, that if Jannah people will be eating, then after all of that food, and the food is digested, they have to use a bathroom. So what are they going to do for that? This is only because we use the words that we are normally using in this world, and that is food, that is meat, that is fruit, so eating it and then digesting it. So simply now it comes to our mind that it has to, the vestige is there. Something has to happen about that. Not realizing that these are only examples that we are using of words. Otherwise, in reality, in Jannah people will never be hungry. Why do they need food for? Say a person didn't eat in Jannah for three days. Is he going to be starving? No. Of course not. There is no needs. There are no needs in Jannah. If there are needs, then people are still in hardship. So there are no needs in Jannah. It's only luxury. So, in Jannah, all of these things that we will be using, they are not from this dunya, that they have all the wastage, they have all the bad smells, they have all of these things. All of these other attachments are not there. It's only we are using certain names to understand that, okay, we will be enjoying our lives over there by eating, by drinking, and by other things. 
if we cannot even understand the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how can we understand the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So through these, I'm just trying to make it clear that we will be using examples. And as I said, this name Al-Latif is so deep that I cannot even start directly talking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. At the end, we will try to have a little understanding of this attribute. But first thing we need to understand, how does this attribute applies to other objects in this world? What does it mean? How can we understand this thing from our worldly point of view? And then we will try to see how can we understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Rabbul Alameen subhanahu wa ta'ala through this attribute. Lutf in Arabic language means, has different meanings. One of them is to be very kind. To be very soft. To be very humble. This is one of the meanings of Lutf. And of course, this meaning is very simple to understand that we say Allahu Latif, Allah is Latif, Allah is very kind to his servants, loving, he loves his servants, he is very humble with his servants. So, similar meaning to Rahim, but not exact same meaning, because Rahim is merciful and this is kindness to everyone. Just like we use this word for human beings also that there are people that are very kind, very soft-hearted people and people who love to see everyone in doing good, everyone having peace, everyone having uh, a good life in this world. They, don't, they can't see people struggling regardless who they are. This is Lutf. Another meaning of Lutf is to be subtle, to be in a position where we may say intangible, that something you cannot grab, something does not have a body to it, something that you cannot capture. In other words, it will be, just like we use in English, tangible and intangible substance that have body to them. And through that physical body you can grab it, you can capture it. And substance that are intangible, that they have no bodies to them, you cannot grab it in normal ways. So, this is another meaning of Latif, which means something now is not unrelated to the first meaning. It's really related to the first meaning. How? Something is too soft. And because of being so soft, it's intangible. You cannot grasp that thing. You cannot get hold of it. Just like we have the air. Air is considered to be latif, lutf in it, which means it's something that has no body to it. We don't see it. We can't uh, grab it. We can't uh, have full control over it of how it goes, where it goes. And at the same time, we know that it is there. So, 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created a lot of objects in this world that are of that kind, which means we know there are certain things that are solid, there, uh, they have bodies to them, and some other things that are not solid. They, have not, they, have, they don't have no body to it. This is another meaning of al-latif. How does it apply to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? As I said, I will leave that to the end. Inshallah, later on we will talk about it. Let us just look at the meanings of al-latif right now from the point of view of our worldly things and how we can understand the word latif. In addition to this, the third meaning of latif is someone who knows all the hidden things. Something, if you know the uh, things that are very deep, uh, that are hidden, uh, things that normally you cannot see, things that normally you have no access to. People are plotting against you and you were able to sense it. And by sensing it, you know now this person came for this reason and that person came for that reason. So uh, while we cannot grasp the thing by its physical body, you can have a deep look into it and have a good understanding of what this thing is, what's behind it. This is another meaning of al-latif, which means uh, we may say that uh, getting to the finest mysteries of the things that what, what, it, uh, what is behind it and where, what is the mystery. The things that are mysteries for everyone else, it's very simple knowledge for that person. This is also lutf. And again, this is related to the, those meanings because now, keeping all three, these, uh, three of these meanings in mind, number one, latif means to be kind, soft. Kindness comes because of having a so soft heart. So this is why kind, we use the word kind for uh, latif for kind because kindness comes because of the softness of the heart. So something that is soft, something that is intangible and something that gets everywhere so knows everything about everything so it's everywhere therefore nothing is hidden from it so nothing a mystery for it everything is in front of it just like if there is something that happened into this room and for all of us it may be a mystery because no one was there and someone brought the chandelier down, we saw the bulbs are opening up, then it went up, and someone turned the light on, we are all sitting here, for us is a mystery. We don't know what, how is it happening. Now we may want to find out, talk to people, but a person who has any connection with the jinn, may be able to say, oh, I see him, look, he's doing it. For him, this is not a mystery. So, depending on person's abilities, for some people something will be a mystery, for other people that will be something very well known and easily known that it's simple. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-latif. Keeping all these three things in mind now, when you look at Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as being al-latif, we may have a little understanding of this attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Still, I'm not going to relate this 
named him at this time as how we understand it. Let me just mention some examples from the creatures that are around us and from other things, from using some of the examples of things that are around us. Take a simple example of the air. This air that we know it's there, it exists, it's around us, but we can't see it. So the air is here, we are breathing it too, we are using it too, but we cannot see this air. And subhanAllah, it's so soft that when it's coming, it's continuously hitting us, but we never feel that it hurts us until when it gets to a certain level of strength, then we feel, oh, there is air here. You put a, put a fan in front of you, and now when the fan starts blowing the air towards our face, we realize there is so much air here. That air was already there. And day and night, as we walk, we are hitting the air. And the air is hitting us. But we don't see it, and we don't even feel it. And sometime, when you add something into this air, by which you are adding some color to it. For example, there is a little smoke. The smoke is now flying in the air. When you blow it, blow the smoke, and you see how the smoke will just start breaking in pieces here and there, evaporating here and there. What is this to tell us? To tell us how soft that thing is. How soft Allah Subhanahu wa Taala created the air that with a little blow from your mouth, you can just break it apart. This is the air. And in spite of all of this, it's so powerful. It's so powerful that not to talk about these trees that have deep roots to them and it's almost impossible for us to pull them out with these roots. This air when it starts blowing, not to talk about just these trees, castles that have strong foundations of metal, it takes up everything, blows out anything and everything that would come on its way. This is the very same air that is so soft and at the same time so powerful. We are hitting it day and night, we don't feel it. But when it starts coming with speed, of course we know that our weight and our power, our strength is nothing comparing to that air when it starts blowing hard. It really just takes towns and countries in no time, doesn't even need any time. So we see now, this air has the quality of luf, which means being very soft. And something that is not being, we cannot see, we cannot grab. But at the same time, it's everywhere. See, we saw, we, we said one of the meanings is, because of being everywhere, nothing is hidden from it. So the air is everywhere. And in spite of being so soft, at the same time it's so strong that nothing can stand on its way. We see the oceans, big waves in the ocean. Where are they coming from? The air pushes all of that. 
pushes such heavy waves for so far that if we really were to use our power and machineries to create those type of waves, we may not be able really to have waves of that power, that strength, and going traveling for such a far distance. And here we see how air is doing the, all of that work. Since we talked about air pushing the water, water is another thing that is also has the, in its body, it has luft in it, very soft. Break it the way you want, spill it, drink it, it goes, travels within your body, anywhere, everywhere. It's traveling in our wings, fat of the blood, it's everywhere. <coughs> Boil it, it will evaporate. This is how soft it is. It will just fly up. Again, look at the strength of it, at the power of it that we have experienced in this past uh, few months. And we have seen that when it gets violent, when it comes with a force, what it can do. And I'm sure we all are very well aware that we have no power over controlling neither the air nor controlling the water. Controlling the water really doesn't look being as difficult as it really is. I mean, it's so difficult to control water. And we know when a leak starts somewhere. The leak starts somewhere. Now, it may be just a drop, but that drop of water, once it's out of our control, it's out of our control. You keep on putting buckets and tarps and try to get someone fixed it, and still someone fixed it, and still there is some leak. Another person, and there is leak. And third person, there is leak. Uncontrolled. These are only few drops that are uncontrollable. Imagine when the waves come. We know they turn these big ships that have not only ships of our understanding, nowadays with the type of ships they have, where they have airports in it. They can park so many airplanes in it. There are thousands of people in it at the same time. The army ships that we see, and they have a runway in the air. In the ship, a wave comes and turns everything upside down. Imagine how much power would you need to even shake that thing. Forget about turning it upside down, just to shake it. How much power do we need? So, we see these obstances that they in. When we look at them, they're so soft. But at the same time, if it sets using its force, it's so powerful too. And there are so many other things that we experience them at all times. Soon we'll be experiencing another thing. Winter is coming. Cold. Cold and heat. Some people say there is nothing cold. Cold is the absence of heat. When there is no heat, then it's cold. But regardless, however you use your philosophy on it, if you live in Buffalo, you know cold means something. 
And with this cold and heat that is there, what is this? Where it comes from? We see that it's something that it really gets out of our control. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created these type of examples in this world to show us that look, there are so many things that are out there that have no bodies to them. If you think about it, you can say it's so weak. But when it comes with its force, it gets so strong that it come, it's uncontrollable by human beings. Angels, jinns, when they come in the real forms, close all the windows, all the doors, and then guarantee me that jinn cannot come into your room. An angel cannot enter into this place. Who can stop them from entering? Human beings. Up to this day with all that we have developed and all the technology we have, we cannot stop angels, we cannot stop even jinns from entering anywhere they would like to enter, regardless of how, what type of forts we build, and what type of sealing material we would use to seal everything, we will not be able to stop the malaika from entering that place. Because there is lots in the body. Bodies are intangible, they are latif. They just get anywhere. With this we may also understand now of a misunderstanding that we normally carry. We will understand our misunderstanding and that is normally we think that obstacles that have strong bodies, unbreakable bodies, they are the strongest objects. But in reality, that may not be the fact. Obstances that have no bodies are stronger than these that have these strong bodies. So the ones that have no physical bodies normally are stronger. The ones who have some physical body to it, where you can sense it, where you see it, the more you are able to sense the thing, the weaker that thing is. For example, light, you can see it. Since we see the light, so it's something that we get with our eyes, therefore you build a wall, so the light cannot go beyond the wall. So there is somewhere we can control the light, this is the weakness of the light. In it's more powerful than many other things, but still, because it can be seen, so now we can have somewhere where we can stop it. Water. We can see it, but has no color to it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not even put any taste to it. So, it is latif, it is something that we really may not be able to have full control over it, but to a certain extent you can control it. You can stop it somewhere. 
But air, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't even give it a color. So no body to it that we can see or we can sense. Therefore, we lost control over it. Now if we will, all of us will work so hard to keep the air out of this room, that today we will make sure we empty this room from all the air that's in it. And I'm sure we know that human beings, we have no, that po no power over it, that we will just keep it out, we won't allow no air to come in here. See, the thing that have less body to sense is more powerful. And that is more out of our control. From here, let's go beyond our understanding and that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We cannot apply any body to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We cannot see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And therefore, human beings can never have any power over Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or any control over Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We cannot even control one of His creatures, air. Air that has that look, we cannot capture the air, we cannot control it. How can we control Al-Latif subhanahu wa ta'ala? How can we have any power over Al-Latif subhanahu wa ta'ala? Going back to the point, things that do not have any bodies to them, cannot be sensed, are more powerful than the ones that have strong bodies to them. And now if we start looking at it, you will see it in everywhere. There is metal, so strong, that people thought nothing will bring this metal down. And there was a fire. The whole tower came down. From what? From the heat. From the heat. The heat was able to bring both the towers down. So here we see what, metal, what fire would do to the metal. Now, what do we benefit from knowing all of this? Science? No. We want to understand something else now. Come back to our souls now. Our body is created of two things. We are created of two different objects. One is the physical body and the other is our ruh. Ruh, something we cannot sense, we cannot smell, we cannot see. And therefore, we have no power over our ruh. We have no power even over our own ruh. Forget having power about other things that are uncontrollable. Now, not only that now we understand that we have no power over our ruh, we also understand how powerful our ruh is because it's something that cannot be sensed. So it's more powerful than the physical body. If our understanding was that our physical body is stronger than our ruh, we were making a big mistake in understanding our souls. We need to understand our souls. We have a physical body and we have a ruh. 
This ruh is much more powerful than the physical body. Normally human beings love to use their physical body because they have easy control over it. So forgetting everything in my life, I would like to just use the physical body and get whatever I can. Working on the ruh, I feel that it's difficult because I have never seen the ruh, never sensed the ruh, never smelled the ruh, never touched it. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent Anbiya alayhim as-salatu wassalam. Anbiya alayhim as-salatu wassalam taught us how to work with this rule and give it the strength and the power and make the right use of it. Once we know how to make the right use of this ruh, ruh is latif. And physical body is not latif. This has a body to it. This cannot be everywhere. This is very much controlled by its physical body. Ruh is not controlled by that. It's throughout the body. My finger is only here. It's not everywhere. But my ruh is throughout the body. So, Ruh is everywhere. Therefore, if we use the ruh, instead of just using the physical body, we will be much more powerful and we will have, we will be able to have much more achievement by, by, through our lives than we can have by just using the physical body. Anbiya they came to teach us how to use this ruh that has so much lutf, latif, intangible, unsensible, something that we cannot see, how can we use that? One of the things that Anbiya did to prove that they are true prophets, what was that? Miracles. They performed different miracles. What are these miracles? Is it the use of the physical body? Through the use of the physical body, the Prophet of Allah was able to do something? No. This is use of their ruh. Their ruh was so powerful, so strong, that when the time came and they wanted to use their ruh, that spiritual power to do something, they did it and they did things that people putting all of their bodies together, all of their strength together, they would never be able to do those things. Now we can see through the use of this rule, this power, there some, some time in the history, people controlled the water. They controlled this water from getting anywhere, stop the water. Musa alayhi salatu wassalam, has the ocean with a stick. Is it the power of the stick? No. This is the spiritual power of Musa alayhi salatu wassalam, his connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what his spiritual power is all about. Through that, he was able to stop the water. The spiritual power. We see a Prophet of Allah bringing a camel out of the mountain. 
spiritual power. We see the Prophet of Allah having control over something that we just talked about, uncontrollable by us, but Allah gave him control over, over that air. Sayyidina Sulaiman alayhi salatu wasalam. He has control over jinns, he has control over animals, he has control over airs. Through what? The spiritual power that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him. It's not that he sees the air with his eyes now, with his physical eyes, and he sees every air everywhere. No. It's the spiritual power by which he controls that air. It's the spiritual power that we see someone sitting in a desert. Doesn't even have these beautiful carpets that we have. Sitting on a floor with dust on it. And he moves his finger looking at the moon and splits the moon into two pieces. Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When he showed that miracle to the kuffar of Quraysh. He says, look at that. And just moving his finger. And they look up there, the moon is split into two pieces. What power was that? This is what we say, ruh. The spiritual power. Coming down. Those were Anbiya alayhimu salatu wassalam who can even get close to their power, especially when we talk about the spiritual power. Look at Sahaba Ridwanullahi alayhi majma'een and their achievements. When Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas radiyallahu anhu is standing in front of the ocean and he says, To Salman al-Farsi radiyallahu anhu. Salman, do you think we can walk over the water? If he would have asked us. Salman radiyallahu anhu says, Just give me a minute. I will tell you in a minute. He comes, he gets up on his camel, turns around to see the faces of all the people that are with them. After looking at that, he says, Sa'ad, we can walk on the water. I see faces, I see eyes that have no sin on them. We can walk on this water. And we all know, the whole army walked on the water. No one lost anything. They were walking normal. Their camels are walking on the water. Their horses are walking on the water. Only one person lost a cup and he came out and he complained sad i lost my cup the water took it did the water take it and he stands over there and makes that announcement we need our cup back and a wave comes and the cup comes out it looks like these are children's stories really in the reality behind it and we know that these are the stories that we know through tawatr which means throughout the centuries, because it was something unique, throughout the centuries, large number of people always quoted this, just like they have quoted their hadith. Umar radiallahu anhu is walking on the street of Medina Munawwarah. When people look at him, 
No one can even think that he has he would be Amirul Mu'mineen. A person who has two sheets on his body with so many patches on it. And he keeps on walking on the streets of Medina Munawara to make sure everything is running smooth. And at the end of the day or by noon when he's tired, he just lays down somewhere flat on the ground, on the street. He piles up a little bit of dust and that's his pillow. And he rests over there for some time and then he gets up and goes back to his work. It reminds me that during the time when there were wars going between the Muslims and the Roman Empire, they sent a person to kill Umar anhu. So the person came to Medina Munawwara and for half a day he's looking for Amir al-Mu'mineen. He can't find Amir al-Mu'mineen. Because people are pointing towards a man that he never think he can be Amir al-Mu'mineen. So he asked different people, who's Amir al-Mu'mineen? That man there. A man is walking with a whip in his hand. So simple. He stops at this store, he talks to the store owners, someone stops him, talks to him. He can't be Amir al-Mu'mineen. No guards around him. He has seen, he came from that empire where people do sujood to their king. Where no one can see the king from the public. And here this person is just walking right down, down the street and children, they come and grab his hand and say, I need to talk to you, uncle. Finally, he's convinced that he has to be Amir al-Mumineen. Everyone's telling me he's the one. Okay, so this is the person. This is easy now. He thought the task would be so difficult, this is easy. Why? That person is only using the physical body and his physical strength. And he's comparing that with the physical power that he sees in front of him there. That person became Muslim later on and he narrates as Imam Waqidi rahmatullahi alayhi narrated in Futuh al-Sham that while he's traveling, this person sees that the Umar radiallahu anhu goes out towards the desert and he's tired, so he piles up some dust and he puts a sheet down, that becomes his good mattress, and he sleeps. This is a good opportunity for him. So he wait, he waited until he sees that now he really is in a deep sleep. That person sees, I started walking towards him to see that there was a lion walking around him. So initially he says, I thought, it's just my vision, something is wrong with me. No, no, I don't think there is a line. I have never seen the line coming from anywhere. He says, that I, get, I, I get closer, the line is just looking at me now. And he was so scared that he threw everything he had and he ran away. And later on he came back to Umar radiallahu anhu to inform him that this is what had happened. I was sent by people to do this. But when I saw how you were protected by the lion, I know that it was from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Umar radiallahu anhu, basically I didn't start talking about Umar because of this. I wanted to mention another story of Umar radiallahu anhu showing the spiritual power. Umar radiallahu anhu is walking on the streets of Medina Munawwara. A person comes to him. Amir al-Mu'mineen, we have a big 
problem. And really the problem he mentioned was such a big problem that if we would have that type of problem these days, it would shake up the whole kingdom and we, we won't have, a, it's difficult for us to have a solution to it. Something that Umar radiallahu solved in no time without any worry whatsoever. In a minute, in a minute, he solved the problem. What was that? The message he got was, this person has been sent by Amr ibn al-As radiallahu anhu from Syria, from, from Egypt. And the message is that the water in the river Nile dries once, in a, uh, once a year. It just dries up. And the water, they don't get the water until they prepare a young girl and they throw her into the river. When they throw the girl in, then the water starts flowing back. What should we do now? If we don't do this, we will get no water. And that's the only source of living for the people of Egypt. So we will be killing so many people. On the other hand, if we throw that girl, it's we are killing someone with our own hands. How can we do that? What should we do? Now, imagine what type of problem they have now. If we say, no, don't do that, simply means let the people of Egypt die. Let the people of Mosul die. Have no water, no growth, their animals will die, or empty the country. But it won't be livable for people, for, for living beings over there. Throw the girl. This is again, then we are giving that fatwa, okay, it's halal. Amir al-Mu'mineen. Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu. For him, he said, oh, this is the thing, okay. Find me something that I can write on. And that person picks up a small piece of stone or something that he, they can write on. And Umar radiyallahu anhu writes on that piece. The letter is not addressed to Amr ibn al-As or any of the leaders or anyone. The letter, when this person read, was, Oh water, if you flow on your own, we don't need you. And if you flow with the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then start flowing without taking anything from us. He says, go and give it to Amr bin Aas and ask him to throw it into the river. <coughs> this person takes it, gives it to Amr bin Aas. If we would have brought it to me, I would say something happened to Umar, Amir al-Mu'mini. I don't think we want to do that. We want a solution. We don't want just ta'weez. We want to solve the problem. What to do now? Subhanallah, look at the iman of Amr bin al-As on the other hand. He knows for sure this thing is going to work. This is it's not one person. Everyone there. Similar category. <coughs> Amr ibn Aas says, I'm not going to just throw the stone like this. I, first thing, let's gather all the people so they can witness this too. My fear would be, what if it won't work? 
Umar bin Aas has no fear. He knows it would work for sure. So he gathers the people. And in the presence of all the people, they throw that letter of Amir al-Mu'mineen, Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu, into the river, and it started flowing, never stopped up to this day. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the human beings with two different, in two different parts. Physical body and our spiritual body, our ruh. Ruh is always stronger than the physical body. There are so many other examples that are coming to my mind and they're forcing me to say something, but the watch is trying to stop me because it's chasing us too fast. But since we talked about Sahaba, Anbiya and Sahaba, let me just give one example from the time after Sahaba Ridwanullahim too. And it's a beautiful example, well known in the history of Islam, of Urwah ibn Zubayr anhu. When he had a disease in his leg, and they prescribed for him that they have to cut his leg. Cut it all the way from the joint. So, he asked the doctor, what do you have to do for this? He said, we will give you, don't worry about the pain, we will give you anesthesia and uh, you won't even feel the pain. He had two questions about it. One is, if you are going to give me any anesthesia, they, they used to drink. If you give me any of that to drink, number one, it may be haram. It has haram ingredients in it. Number two, I would be unconscious. And because of that, I won't be able to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they said, are you rejecting to have the surgery done to you? If not, it's going to spread throughout your body. He said, no, you go ahead and do it. You don't have to give me any anesthesia or anything like this. I will start doing the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The time you see the face, the color of my face changing, you go ahead and cut it. This is Urwa ibn Zubayr radiallahu anhu. He's a tabi. And they kept some strong people in the room in case if he starts moving, if we cut and then know the severe pain a person will have, will go through because of that. And they did the whole surgery on him. He never moved. All they hear from him is he is just doing the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Doing some, even the dhikr is mentioned, which name of Allah alam, he was mentioning some of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's well known about Ali radiallahu anhu. He's from the Sahaba. Ali radiallahu anhu. When the arrow was stuck in his leg, in his thigh, and they said, there is no way but to pull it out. He said, okay, when I'm in salah, then you pull it out. And he's doing the salah, they pulled it out after salah. He doesn't even know that they pulled the arrow out. I know how many flies are in the room. He doesn't even know if they have pulled the arrow out. He sees the blood and he looks at it where the blood is from. Find out that they, they have pulled the arrow out. What is all of this? This is just for us to have a little feel of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have given us and we are not using. Our ruh. He's given all of us the same thing. It's not that those people have ruh in them and we are created without ruh. 
we have that ruh too. But they use the ruh and we are not using the ruh, we are only using the physical body. The point I was mentioning was Lutf, Latif, something that is soft, something that is that can be anywhere. These things are very powerful. So comparing to our physical body, our ruh is very powerful. Now, without going into any more examples, let's try to understand as we got it. Let me just quickly repeat the three meanings of al-latif. One is something that is very soft, very kind, very polite. Number two, something that is intangible. Something uh, that is that has no body to it, that can be anywhere, you cannot stop it. Number three, something, someone who knows everything, because it's everywhere, so of course, if it has ears, if it has senses, then it would know anything and everything. With these three meanings now, let's turn towards understanding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as Al-Latif. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Latif. He is very kind to mankind. He is very kind to everyone. And we learned that when we were talking about the attribute of Ar-Rahim subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we see that in Quran when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, مَا يَفْعَلُ اللَّهُ بِعَذَابِكُمْ إِنْ شَكَرْتُمْ وَآمَنْتُمْ What Allah will get by punishing you? If you are thankful to Allah, and you believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He doesn't like to punish people. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam tells us, that beautiful example that is mentioned in the hadith, a woman that was looking for a child, she lost her child in a battlefield and she's looking for him. Finally when she found her child, she grabbed the child and started hugging him and kissing him. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam asked the sahaba, do you think this mother would ever throw her son, her child into the fire? Impossible, Ya Rasulullah. How could she do this? See how much she loves him. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Allah loves human being more than this mother loves her child. So Latif, he wants every good for us. And he is a Latif because we cannot see him. We cannot see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Our senses cannot have any power over having any sense of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with our physical senses. Ruh has no body to it. Through that we can sense the rahmah of Allah, the barakah of Allah, these things. We can sense them through the ruh, but not through the physical body. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is latif, that He knows all things. There is nothing that is hidden from him. With this we can understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being latif. Sometimes we translate that as kind, Allah is kind. Sometimes we may translate it as uh, uh, courteous or uh, merciful. Yes, it means that, but it has much deeper meaning than just that. The word latif is used seven times in Quran al-Kareem. Out of these seven, I will tell you just using some of these examples to 
to see how it is used for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Qur'an and which sense it's used for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Qur'an. So only some examples out of this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَا تُدْرِكُهُ الْأَبْصَارِ وَهُوَ يُدْرِكُ الْأَبْصَارِ وَهُوَ اللَّطِيفُ الْخَبِيرِ No vision can grasp him. While he grasps all visions, not just the eyes, even the vision where it's going, he sees the vision. Our vision cannot see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We cannot see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with our eyes. See now when we were talking about things that are out of our senses, we cannot control through our senses. La tudrikul absar. Visions cannot grasp him. And he grasps all visions. Why? Because he is Latif. He is Latif and he is Khabir. Latif, now we may, as some of the translation uh, translated uh, this Latif here, as he's subtle. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is subtle and he's all knowing. He's well aware of everything. Khabir, we will talk about Khabir, that's the next name. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is subtle, which means he knows about everything. So, no one can see him and he sees everything. He cannot be, we cannot see him yeah, our, through our eyes. He's not in the control of our eyes. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is something that now we understand about the being of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we cannot limit him to, to any body or any place. In Surah Yusuf, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used it for another meaning. And that is Sayyidina Yusuf alayhi salatu wassalam. We know that he went into, he was thrown in a well, then into Egypt as a slave, in a prison, and finally a king. And then he brings his family back. A day came when now everyone is seeing something totally different than what the brothers had planned for him. And what it seemed from the physical picture of that time, what it seemed it will be happening to this boy. He will be living as a slave or he will die in a desert. But now they see something totally different. He asked his parents to sit on the throne. They all went into sujood for him. It was allowed in that deen. He says to his father, this is the interpretation or this is the meaning of my dream that I had seen long ago. Allah made that dream true. He did such a great favor to me that he brought me out of the prison. And he brought you from that small village. After Shaytan had created differences between me and my brothers. My Lord is Latif. To do whatever he wants. What is it referring to? See the very hidden power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that was working behind the whole thing. It seemed that this boy is going to be in a desert, this boy is going to be a slave, this boy will end up being in prison forever. But, inna rabbi latifun. Behind all of this was the plan of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, unseen power in the plan of Allah, that he would like to make him, put him into that power in Egypt. 
Now how is he going to get there? If he just walks into Egypt, he will not make it. Subhanallah, look at the position, then look at the situations he goes through, and finally that U-turn comes, takes a U-turn, and now he is totally on a different position. Inna Rabbi Latifun Lima Yasha. The hidden power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that works behind everything. Then in Surah Ash-Shura, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses it for another meaning. Allahu Latifun Bi'ibadih Yarzuku Man Yasha. Allah is very kind, or we may say, is very, very courteous to his servants. Yarzuku Man Yasha. He gives rest to whoever he likes. See now he is used for that meaning. So all these meanings that we talked about, they are used in Quran Al-Kareem for this Al-Latif. In general, the word Latif, when we refer it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it holds all of these meanings. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Latif. In all of these senses, we see his Latif in many different ways. Sometimes we see it as a kindness. Sometimes we see it as his Plans working behind things, sometimes we see it in his knowledge that is everywhere. So, and sometimes we see it in his power. See, we saw, we, we just saw how power of things that are not, in, that are intangible. So, we see Lutf of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in all different ways. This is all, these are all just signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being Latif. When a person becomes Latif in his uh, life, and our connection with the Latif subhanahu wa ta'ala, number one, this name is, as I said, very deep, very powerful. And as I said, we talk that it really talks about a very special power. This is why we find a lot of people use this attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for having great achievements in this life. This name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, as I said, very deep, very powerful. So a lot of people use it, but I'm sure you have noticed that I'm not using really, I haven't, I haven't used the benefits that people normally drive, the worldly benefits people get from using these names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that you recite this name these many times and you get married and you recite these many days, these many times and you get a good business or I, have or I haven't used those things because the purpose of this, I don't want to change it, and that is the purpose of our sessions is to understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and establish connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not just to get some worldly benefits from it. So, yes, we can get that. I'm not saying it's not allowed. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. But main emphasis and thing that we'd like to learn here is how can we understand Rabbul Alameen subhanahu wa ta'ala and establish our connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But I mentioned this point to realize that the name is very powerful. The name is very powerful and people have really used this name to have some great achievements uh, in their ruh, again, not necessarily worldly achievements, even spiritually because this uh, name refers to some spiritual power as we just talked about. So people were able to achieve a lot through it. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the right understanding of his attributes and give us the strong connection with himself and with his deen, and with his Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept us, and bless us, and give us tawfiq to 
have this connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and continuously be strengthening our connection with Rabbul Alameen subhanahu wa ta'ala. Aqul qawli hadha wa astaghfirullah li wa lakum wa lisa'ir al-muslimin wa al-muslimat wa akhiru da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. The question is, we know that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam performed a lot of miracles that are narrated in the ahadith. But there are some ayahs of Al-Qur'an that says that when Kuffar asked Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam for a miracle, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to them that, isn't it enough for you people that we sent you a book through the Messenger of Allah, this should be enough for you. These ayahs are referring to when they are asking for a specific miracle, which means miracles as per demand. So I'm demanding, I go to the Prophet of Allah that I want a uh, nice swimming pool in my backyard. So if you're a prophet of Allah, then make me a swimming pool through your miracle. Then the next person goes and says, I need a nice garden in my yard. So this is miracles per demand. Those are the miracles that are always rejected. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never wanted to give people miracles according to their demands. There are only few prophets of Allah that performed miracles as per the demand of the people and always the condition was that after seeing that miracle that was demanded by you, if any of you would reject, you would see right there, you will see the adab of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it happened in the past. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did, did not want to do that. Of course, as far as things that are concerning regarding the physical existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, with all of these things, really we won't be able to understand it. Once we realize that we cannot understand those things, we have understood that. That is the understanding of it. To know that we cannot understand it. Because Laysa Kamithlihi Shaykh, there is nothing like him. So how can we even imagine what that is? As far as now, when it comes to these type of hadith, then scholars have chosen two different directions. One direction was of the early people, and that was whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, however we see. We will not even say nothing about it. For example, he says he comes down, we say, okay, he comes down. How? We don't know. He says, he has a hand, we'll say yes. He has a hand, how? He, we don't know. But any of the parts that are not used for him, we will not attribute that to him. In other words, we will just leave it in words and the way he has worded. And we will not even change in the wordings of it or we will not attribute any meaning to it. The others, mutakhirin, the later on of the ummah, the muhaddisin and mufassirin, when they realized that a lot of people are having difficulty in their iman, even to preserve their iman, when you tell them, no, just leave it. He says he comes down, he comes down, however. So they said, no, no. We don't think that we understand what this is. And people are having doubting their iman or doubting the hadith. So for that they said that let's use the meaning that is really applicable and understandable from the other hadith. It's true too. And that is, he comes down, which means he descends, his, his, his rahmah descends on people. For sure we know that on those nights about which he says that he comes down, we know for sure more rahmah descends on people on that night. It's the night of rahmah. So they attribute that, okay, it refers to more Rahmah is coming. As far as physically, he's, he's not getting closer or further from people. So both ways are okay. 
as long as we don't attribute anything that is not in the Quran or Hadith towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One more question. In, uh, in the Quran, uh, in lots of places, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls uh, Jibreel alayhi salam the ruh. Even, and, and even in Surah Al-Nabai, it says, يَوْمَ يَقُمُ الرُّوحُ وَالْمَلَائِكَةِ So he actually separates uh, Jibreel alayhi salam as the ruh wal-malaika, the other malaika. Why does he separate uh, Jibreel alayhi salam as one, like, ruh wal-malaika? That's as if, like, he's not amongst the malaika, or he even calls him the, his ruh. Mm. So how, how do we understand that? The question is about Qur'an using the word ruh for Jibreel alayhi salatu wasalam. And of course the question goes beyond that and that is why Qur'an separates between Jibreel alayhi salatu and the rest of the malaika. This is of course because of the importance of Jibreel alayhi salatu just like we say all the sahaba went there. My question, I'm not satisfied, my thirst did not quench because just by that I want to know was Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa there? His position among malaika is the same, just like we have the position of Anbiya amongst the rest of the people. So, this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala very importantly, in important events, situations, mentions Jibreel alayhi salatu wasalam, that Jibreel alayhi salatu wasalam will, all, will also be there. Just like about Laylatul Qadr, Tanazzalul Malaikatu wa Ruh, one of the opinions of Ruh here is Jibreel alayhi salatu wasalam, that even Jibreel alayhi salatu wasalam comes down during that night. It's such an important night. So, if Allah would say, Malaika, come down, it will, we will, okay, angels, they come down, but I still, there are two angels on my right and my left, there are a lot of angels, they come every day, Asar and Isha, but now when the ayah says, Jibreel also comes down, that tells me there is something here. So, it's the importance of Jibreel Why does he refer to Jibreel as Ruh? The word ruh is used for about seven meanings in Quran al-Kareem. One of the meanings of a ruh in Quran is malaika, and the other meaning is angel. It refers to the thing that we have, soul, our soul, by which we have our life. And one of the reasons that he's considered as ruh, just the same reason as for which Sayyidina Isa wasalam, is considered to be ruh, and that is closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, uh, because of the uh, miraculous birth of uh, Isa alayhi salatu wasalam, he is called Ruhum Min, Ruh from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is his, how uh, Jibreel alayhi salatu wasalam, this is how close he is to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is given that special title of Ar Ruh. This is one of the meanings. There are other explanations by the Mufassirin and Muhaddisin also to this. But nothing that we can say it's final wording on it because it's not in the Quran. The question is about when a person is doing the dhikr. Can we do the dhikr just in our mind or should we move our tongue also with it? <coughs> it's better that when we do it, we move our tongue also with it because by the movement of the tongue, even that is getting written. And normally with our situation, movement of the tongue always helps us remind, to remind ourselves in our heart also. Otherwise, if we just do it in our mind, then after some time we may forget and the reminder is not there. Yes, if a person will get to the level about which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in Quran al-Kareem that we should 
ponder into the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if we are practicing that and we just close our uh, mouth, we don't want to move our tongue and just think about the greatness of Allah, and which is part of the dhikr of Allah, thinking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, His greatness, His azamah, His power, then we can do that, but it will be just part of the practice. Mainly, dhikr is best me, we have the movement of the tongue also with it. And same thing, as far as recitation of Qur'an, we should always have the movement of the tongue with it, because it will not be considered recitation unless we move our tongue and recite it. Otherwise, it's only thinking about Qur'an, it's not reciting it.